The next case was again presented by Dr. Thomas, another patient with advanced disease, in this case a participant in her phase 2 study evaluating the combination of erlotinib and bevacizumab, a regimen that is garnering a lot of attention in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. The faculty explored this case in depth to highlight the complexities of developing treatment plans in patients with liver-only disease, as is evident by the wide spectrum of options considered. So this 54-year-old man has known hepatitis C, via history of hepatitis C, steatosis or fatty liver, so his performance status is, you know, a little marginal. He's got a fair amount of tumor-related or disease-related fatigue. He actually has pretty good liver function. He's got normal bilirubin of 0.3, and a good albumin, 3.9 is high, so his synthetic function is well-preserved, and a moderately high alpha-fetoprotein, over 1,000. He's quite overweight, probably contributing to the fatty liver. Cirrhotic liver with a really kind of scalloped edge to it. When we're studying liver disease and hepatocellular cancer, we use what's called a three-phase CT scan as opposed to just a standard. And he definitely had invasion into both branches of the right portal vein. This patient was found fairly recently, say within the last six months, to be hepatitis C virus positive, so had never been treated for the disease. I believe it was picked up on routine blood work that showed some elevated transaminases, AST and ALT, which then can often lead to subsequent workup, often including a scan, and that can be a very typical way that these patients come to medical attention. What are some of the things that you're thinking about as you look at these images, Dr. Quo? Well, the first thing is, tragically, this looks like a large mass that encompasses a substantial part of the right lobe with a few satellite lesions in the left lobe. When deciding whether or not this is a primary cancer or not, we tend to say, well, is there invasion or what we tend to think of as sinister behavior, and hypervascular mass plus missing portal vein is malignancy and virtually in the setting of an elevated alpha-fetal protein and the disease that causes the most hepatocellular carcinoma. This person's surgical options, I think, have just been effectively eliminated, though I would certainly defer to my surgical colleagues on this one. Dr. Chody, how would you be thinking through this case? Well, I think that I agree with an enhancing mass, risk factors, elevated alpha-fetoprotein to this level over what that threshold typically is, 400, 500, some number. This is over 1,000. The diagnosis of HCC is basically made without, so to address the first question, without even a biopsy. Now, with non-extirpative therapies, which we may discuss whether a biopsy should still be done in this situation, Perhaps. So that is certainly a point of discussion. But I think we have a diagnosis. It's clearly HCC. What about the issue of transplant in a patient like this? The criteria for transplant are largely based on disease confined to the liver and size and number limitations. While I agree that this mass is somewhat heterogeneous and infiltrating and difficult to measure, I think it clearly exceeds any criteria for transplant eligibility. And similarly, I agree that based on the findings, both anatomic and synthetic, based on the appearance that this patient is not a candidate for liver resection. So, Dr. O'Neill, if this patient were to show up in your clinic tomorrow with this situation, what would you be thinking, and is it important to stage a patient like this? I think I would be thinking much like the rest of the group here. In terms of your question about stage, I agree. It's sort of a disease where the TNM staging is somewhat meaningless. 
in earlier stage patients, it's nice to know that they're stage one or two. That generally implies they're going to have more local surgical or transplant options. But even in those cases, TNM doesn't make discriminations between what kinds of therapy they can have. The only people that would force us to stage these are our tumor registrars. So we'll be asked, and this person would be a stage three, I believe, because the disease is non-metastatic, but it's large, invades portal vein. So you're dictating your note on this patient at the end. You say impression. What is it? It's HCC advanced? You know, I would say this is a relatively diffuse multifocal HCC with portal vein involvement. I think that description is actually better than any staging system at the moment. Dr. Quo, we have the alpha feeder protein in this case in the clinical setting, obviously, but putting that aside, just purely from an imaging point of view, what are some of the things that you know, push you towards a primary HCC as opposed to metastatic disease? Sure. Let's go through those. So the first thing is that the liver looks cirrhotic, as was noted by Dr. Thomas. And the second thing is that this lesion is hypervascular. The vast majority of metastatic lesions are not hypervascular. There are some exceptions, neuroendocrine tumors, melanoma, which always looks funny no matter what organ it's in, can be hypervascular. The other aspect of this that we discuss often is that it is uncommon in our experience, though seen, but very, very uncommon for a cirrhotic liver to get metastatic lesions, whereas a normal liver gets metastatic lesions. Cirrhotic livers primarily give rise to primary liver cancers. Non-cirrhotic livers are much more commonly involved with metastatic lesions. doesn't mean we haven't seen them, but I'm just telling you it is extremely uncommon. That's interesting. Do you think it's just that cirrhosis is not that common or there's some kind of protection? No, I think cirrhosis is quite common. I think the portal hypertension and other things actually prevent the wow. cancer cells from going. So like and push them out? And I would be interested to see in That's everyone wild. else's experience if it duplicates mine. But we often discuss this at our institution because we'll get consults saying, gee, primary or metastatic, and our experience is that metastatic lesions are far less common in the setting of cirrhosis. Has that been documented in the literature quantitatively? Well, actually, I have someone looking at it right now. So if you get the abstract, don't reject it. Dr. Chody? Yeah, I mean, I think that anecdotally that's been described, but I think it's just a matter of patients with other solid malignancies that metastasize to the liver. Few of those are cirrhotic, and patients with cirrhotic have a high incidence of primary liver malignancies. So whether there's some biologic reason why metastases don't go to the liver in cirrhotic patients, I think is certainly un- unclear. unproven. Yeah. His spleen is moderately enlarged. You look for varices in the porta hepatis around the stomach. Obviously, if one sees ascites, it makes the diagnosis a little bit easier. So you typically look for those findings that are, if you will, extrahepatic. The liver is, it's not overtly nodular, but as Dr. Thomas correctly stated, in my opinion, it clearly looks scalloped. The caudate lobe looked a little bit generous. And all of those things we commonly see with cirrhosis, a big spleen, varices are also very helpful. They suggest portal hypertension as well. And all of those would clue you in to a diagnosis of cirrhosis that would not, in my opinion, require histologic confirmation for just the diagnosis of cirrhosis in this setting. Laboratory values, any platelet count, in my opinion, below 150,000 is suspicious for cirrhosis as well. Dr. Tholova. The most important thing here is to decide whether this patient is a transplant candidate or not. From a prognostic point of view, that is one treatment that will make a huge difference to this patient. With portal vein thrombosis, 
and significant amount of steatosis on that liver, it's very difficult to say all that is tumor. It could be some of the you know, flow abnormalities because of portal vein thrombosis. And it's very common, portal vein thrombosis in cirrhosis. The question is, is that portal vein thrombosis due to tumor or due to some other reason? Is that a big difference in terms of whether you're going to offer transplant? Absolutely, yeah. So if there is tumor on imaging and if that portal vein shows some enhancement, then I might say this patient is not a candidate for liver transplant. Otherwise, I would get some other imaging to see whether we can define the size of the tumor because there is a small lesion on the left side and the right side with portal vein being occluded. I can't say all that is tumor. You know, it could be. But before I rule out this patient for a definitive treatment, I want to get a little more imaging. And when you look at the survival after liver transplant, at least the last five years, the transplant survival in this country, we just analyzed it from the UNOS data. It is 82% five-year survival. It's pretty good if you fulfill the Milan criteria. But once you go outside the Milan criteria, or even UCSF criteria, the survival goes down, way down. It's about 20 to 30%. So the question is whether this patient fulfills the Milan or UCSF criteria. And when you look at that lesion, you probably will say it does fall outside the Milan criteria. But from a patient's perspective, 50-year-old, I like to know a little more than that. You know, well, how I'm else a, could you find out? What else you could, could you do? You could do an MRI, and if MRI doesn't define it very well, the next step may be an arteriogram. What do you think about that, Dr. Quill? I absolutely agree with Dr. Tulavas' assertion that an MRI would provide additional information in this setting. In particular, we would ask our abdominal imaging group to very carefully design imaging sequences to see if the portal vein clot enhances, which we've been able now to determine to try and differentiate, which is what Dr. Thulavath is referring to as a bland thrombus that we see in cirrhosis just because of the slow state versus a malignant thrombus that would as Dr. Tulavath asserts, contraindicate transplantation as well as the other surgical options. And I would get an MR if the portal venous images were not compelling. They might have been in this case with Dr. Thomas' case, but certainly an MR to try to further differentiate whether the entire aspect of the right lobe, which is a little more than half, is taken up by a infiltrative HCC, which I'm afraid in this case, or I'm concerned greatly that it is a biologically aggressive tumor, given that you have satellite lesions in the left lobe. Just biologically, this one appears to be quite aggressive. And therefore, you want to err on the side of life. On the other hand, offering a transplant to someone like this, the survival is so poor afterwards, we would not be doing the patient a service. Is there anything on the image itself with the clot that looks different, whether it's tumor or not? Yes. On MR images, one can also see that the clot will enhance arterially, whereas bland thrombus does not. Our ultrasonographers have rarely been able to Doppler flow in a clot as well, which again signals that this is an organizing thrombus with a tumor in it. And then lastly, I think if someone has correctly stated Dr. Gamblin does exactly what we do, which is to biopsy. If we can't tell, we biopsy the clot. Biopsy the clot. So Dr. Gamblin, this person's in their early 50s. They've been healthy. All of a sudden they find out they have cirrhosis and 
hepatitis C and bang, a few months later, it sounds like they find out they've got HCC. They come to you at the Mecca as the last possibility. Could you do a transplant? What do you think about this? I think that the imaging certainly lends evidence to think that a transplant won't be an option for this patient. But I would agree that he deserves every opportunity to make certain he's not a candidate. We would get an MRI if we had any questions by CT. We typically don't go to an arteriogram, but again, with an AFP elevated and this clinical picture, he doesn't need a biopsy. The real question is, does he have portal vein invasion and what's the size of his tumor? And just to revisit something we were talking about earlier, staging necessarily doesn't matter in this patient per se, maybe with this large of a tumor and such, but in some patients it matters immensely because they can obtain priority points and go way up the transplant list and be listed with priority points if they're a stage two. So if they have a single lesion, no vascular invasion, no extrahepatic disease, and a lesion that's between two and five centimeters, this is an important element of staging because this will enable a patient, the wait list in our institution is less than a month for those patients. And so it's an important element to consider as we consider the staging of these patients. But we would pursue a portal vein biopsy if there was any questions. In other words, if the thrombus did not enhance and the lesion was quite small, and he had a thrombus in his portal vein, then we would biopsy that to make certain. Is that usually successful? That type, It sounds kind of scary to do a biopsy <laughs> like that. Well, you're passing through so much parenchyma in the liver, and you're doing this under ultrasound guidance, that we have not had problems with that. So do you want to follow up a little bit with what happened here? Okay. So at our institution, most of the patients come with a liver biopsy, and depending on, you've heard some discussion here about when you don't, but since most of them, as many are possible, are going to go on clinical trials of systemic agents, you know, we almost always require tissue for that. That's a whole other kind of subject for debate, but nonetheless, he did. So he was enrolled in this trial that we've had ongoing for about three or four years. Now, this trial looks at bevacizumab and erlotinib. What's the background for looking at this combination? Sure. So there were two studies. So we had one trial at our institution of just single-agent erlotinib. That was a NCI-sponsored trial. Where did that come from? Is EGFR overexpressed in HTC? Yes. So, I mean, there's a fair amount of information about growth factors in liver cancer and in the liver. I mean, it's a fascinating tumor in that it's not one disease. I mean, HCC, everybody here, I'm sure would probably agree for many reasons. You know, there's many etiologies. You know, there's patients who get HCC via hepatitis C. Does the biology usually follow the etiology? Oh, I mean, that's a whole topic in and of itself. There's definitely differences. There must be differences in the diseases. So for example, this is a patient with hepatitis C. Oftentimes, so first of all, the majority of those patients will have cirrhosis. So the pathway of hepatitis C to HCC is probably largely its own pathway. Contradistinction to that, hepatitis B patients, less than 50% of those patients will have underlying cirrhosis. So it's very common to see a person with HCC in the setting of hep B with oftentimes a very large mass that you can see easily, completely the opposite of this, with a normal underlying liver. So there's a lot of commonalities, but they also can be very different diseases biologically. Dr. Gamblin? If he has no disease outside his liver, then we would consider perhaps yttrium 90 into his liver rather than a systemic chemotherapy. So you'd be thinking about that right now in this patient? That's correct. Dr. Thomas, did you just think about that? For me to consider regional therapy in this patient, the three things that would really play in are the extent of portal vein thrombus. We're talking about regional therapy now, either chemoembolization or the yttrium spheres, a lot of similarities between them. Dr. Finn? 
Our practice is obviously to discuss these patients on a multidisciplinary tumor board, and we tend to shy away from patients who have portal vein involvement for two reasons. One, they have a higher risk of decompensation after the procedure, that is, taking out the arterial blood supply to the organ when the portal venous blood supply is already compromised. Keep in mind, the liver is amenable to locally ablative treatment because of the anatomy of the organ. That is to say, it has a dual blood supply, unlike most organs. Dr. Gamlin seemed to play that risk down. Well, besides the risk being for decompensation, which I think in our experience we are concerned about. In addition, the randomized trials would have excluded these patients with portal vein clot. Have you seen patients decompensate like this? We have. We have. And I would say in a patient such as this that has a normal bilirubin, a reasonable performance status, that has a portal vein thrombus, we would anticipate this patient wouldn't have a problem. Would or would not? Would not. With the yttrium spheres. Oh, yttrium spheres, yes. Yttrium spheres. There's less of an embolic phenomenon with the yttrium spheres. And so you're really delivering a radiation therapy. It's not so subjective of how much embolization B do you use. It can be alternated some with the decay of the particle, but it's much better yeah. tolerated than chemoembolization yeah, for taste, patients like this. I would be very worried about giving this person taste. Right. And how available is yttrium across the country, Dr. Quo? Are lots of centers doing it? There are an increasing number of centers doing yttrium therapy. There are two types, therosphere and surosphere therapy, differing on the size of the beads. And the procedure is expensive, but I think what Dr. Gamblin said is absolutely correct. It is far better tolerated than transarterial chemoembolization or taste therapy. Our patients who receive yttrium-based therapies go home the next day or can go home in the afternoon. With taste, you had alluded earlier to the poorly tolerated or people getting into trouble and decompensating. We have clearly seen that with tastes. We rarely, if ever, see that with the yttrium-based therapies. You rarely develop the problems that you do with taste. So here's why I did not offer this patient taste. Everything that people have said absolutely play into it. So you had extensive, including main portal vein thrombus, which we wouldn't do taste in this patient, but his bilirubin was normal. The reason I wouldn't is he does most likely have, you know, he's got a lesion larger than about seven or eight centimeters and probable satellites in the left lobe of the liver. So there's questions beyond just, is it safe? But it's also, is it efficacious? And there are very few studies out there, randomized, showing the efficacy, which are the best patients to do taste in and what kind of survival benefit are they going to get. And if there are two randomized trials that were published several years ago, a very small series, but they sort of tell us that if the patients who do best are those who have a solitary lesion, usually smaller than about seven or eight centimeters, and then a lot of these other good things, normal liver, et cetera. So I don't feel that there's any evidence-based literature out there that would support with a large tumor like that with essentially other satellites that that's going to benefit the patient. So I put them on systemic therapy. Dr. Finn, in addition to the local modalities we've talked about and the possibility of participating in trial, what about non-protocol management in a patient like this? Standard of care now for a patient with advanced unresectable liver cancer would probably be serafinib. That obviously is FDA labeled for this indication. Unlike Yttrium, which from my understanding is only out on compassionate use for HCC, there's not been a registrational study for that other than safety data. There obviously is off-label novel therapeutics to be looked at for this patient. I think there's certainly a problem with reimbursement in that area, but 
angiogenesis is a major player in HCC. This is a patient that would have been enrolled in the SHARP study. By the Barcelona criteria, they have locally advanced disease with portal vein thrombosis, which is not a candidate traditionally to locally ablative approaches. And in the control arm on this study, a patient such as this would have had a median survival of about 7.9 months. With serafinib, that was about 11 months. Dr. O'Neill. Well, I think this discussion sets up one of the more interesting potential questions in this disease. So there has now been one series published of the yttrium microspheres in patients with portal vein thrombosis. And that suggests actually a fairly good median survival, similar again to what you might see with serafinib. And so it really begs the question, since this is a fairly common patient population, is it better to give them local regional therapy? Is it better to give them systemic therapy or perhaps both? Are there any thoughts about doing a trial to dissect that out? One of my local colleagues, Mike Morris at Duke, had actually spoken about a combination therospheres and serafinib study. Combination. That's interesting. Yeah. And there are several trials of either, as Dr. Finn mentioned, bevacizumab or serafinib with embolization. And I think, again, some combination of an anti-VEGF and yttrium microspheres would be a very interesting trial. I do believe those microspheres are active. I think the problem right now for us is in terms of making decisions clinically, we don't have that survival information really. And now we have a drug that has really definitive evidence of survival benefit compared to a promising and well-tolerated but very expensive procedure where we don't really have that solid survival information. For this particular patient who has liver-limited disease and portal vein thrombosis, I have offered Therospheres as an option, and sort of at the same time as serafinib or clinical trials. Obviously, my own bias would be a clinical trial when that's available. So if this patient showed up today, would there be a trial at your place you'd put in? Yes. What is it? We're studying a MEK inhibitor. If you look at response, it's certainly higher with the yttrium-90 spheres than you would expect with serafinib, where response is uncommon. And that makes it difficult to talk to a patient because the patient wants to know their tumor is going to shrink. And you can tell them, well, I can give you this treatment where we know roughly 30% of the time your tumor is actually going to shrink, but we don't know if it improves survival on average versus a drug where only about 2% of the time is your tumor actually going to shrink. But we know that there's about a three-month survival advantage. So that's actually a very difficult conversation to have with a patient. What do you say to people who are about to start serafinib? The most debilitating potential side effect of serafinib is diarrhea. Severe diarrhea is fairly uncommon, but grade two sort of persistent, annoying diarrhea is actually fairly common. The chance of getting severe diarrhea is only about 10%, but having any diarrhea is much higher. It's close to half, I would say, 40-ish percent. Severe diarrhea that's difficult control, you're saying 10% or less? A little less than 10%, yeah. What other problems would you counsel a patient about to start serafinib? Rashes and particularly hand-foot syndrome can be also difficult to manage, and those are problems where you know, in a way, you consider them just nuisance toxicities. They shouldn't affect a therapy that's very active, but they can be so severe and so painful that often patients can't tolerate a dose of serafinib because of those issues. So the, the patient says to you, what's the chance that I'm going to have a skin problem that's going to be so difficult that I might want to even think about stopping therapy? What's the chance that's going to happen? Now, again, fortunately, that kind of severe hand-foot syndrome runs, again, about 10% or a little less. So it's not very common, but it's common enough. And what's the chance, and this kind of gets back to the BEV with all the unknowns out there, but what would you say to a patient about to start serafinib who says, what's the chance that I'm going to have a life-threatening toxicity here? 
best we can tell, that's uncommon to have a life-threatening toxicity from serafinib. If you compare it to chemotherapy, for example, it's a well-tolerated drug. Dr. Thule, have any comments about sort of the risk-benefit ratio of serafinib in this situation from your perspective? I think in a patient like this, I would do what Dr. Thomas had done. We have limited data on the role of TACE or yttrium, if that is all tumor. So I might put this patient, if there is a trial available, I would ask the patient to get enrolled in that trial. In patients who are not on trial, whether it's post-liver transplant or pre-transplant, I try sorafenib, not because I have a lot of experience using this drug, but based on the SHARP trial, That's the only drug that has shown to be efficacious in HCC. And of the four or five patients I initiated treatment, only one patient could not tolerate sorafenib. This was an elderly man who had recurrence after taste. We have been following this patient for three years, and the most recent scan showed that some of the areas we had taste before, there is more tumor coming up. So I put the patient on the treatment, After a week, he had significant rash in his hand and feet, and he's in his 70s. The fatigue was profound. Fatigue. And this is a functionally very good patient, well-built guy. In spite of all the cancer, he was doing very well. He plays golf regularly. He couldn't take this drug. So you stopped it? We stopped it for two weeks now, and I spoke to him yesterday. He said, I'm not back to normal, and I've never felt like this. Do you think that this could be the tumor or not the treatment? I think it is the treatment because the tumor is not that big. And he has been functioning quite well until I started this treatment. We debated this quite a bit, you know, whether to give him sorafenib or not. But after a lot of discussion, he and I decided to start him on that. He's the first one I, you know, of all the patients I treat couldn't tolerate it at all. What about fatigue, Dr. Finn, with sorafenib? What's the data and what's your clinical experience? I think there is a certain incidence of fatigue, although not as prominent with other drugs in its class. If you look at the data with sunitinib, which is a small molecule inhibitor of the VEGF receptor, which is being looked at in HCC, I find asthenia and fatigue being a much more prominent side effect of that drug than with serafinib. It's more of an anorexia type of blah type of feeling with serafinib. Dr. Quill? I would initially try serafinib to combat the fatigue, which Dr. Tulavath describes. I've used other adjuvant agents that seem to work, albeit they're expensive, like modafinil. There are some of these medicines that actually can help you get around some of the treatment side effects, although what Dr. Tulavath says is that in some people, the fatigue is quite real. I'm clearly convinced that these small molecules do interfere with other pathways not related to the malignancy and causing systemic side effects. Just as a side note, how many people in this situation take serafinib really have not much of a problem at all? I think that maybe two-thirds can get through with mild to moderate grumbling. What about no grumbling? I'd say there's about 20%. Yeah, that's the minority. That are like on placebo. And then there's another group that have some problems, but not huge big deal? That's probably the majority. And then there's a group that look very sick. I go back to you, Dr. O'Neill. Same situation. You're the patient. We were sort of jokingly talking about going to China for a transplant here. but (laughs) I mean, would you be thinking about trying to get a transplant? 
I don't know. That's really a lot to go through for the odds of success in this. You know, we looked pretty closely at some of our explanted livers and looked at the microsatellite instability in the explanted liver and the loss of heterozygosity and large tumors, vascular invasion even, with a very, very low indices of genetic mutation. These patients did very well in the era before we were so controlled about who we transplanted and who we didn't transplant. So if it was me, I'd want a core biopsy. I'd want to look at the LOH, and then I'd decide if I wanted my really? transplant or not. Yeah. If the LOH was okay, was extremely you, low, I might go for it. You try to yeah. talk somebody into doing it. I might do that, yeah. We took our institution experience, went to Sinai and last Meyer and Swartz to give us some of his samples and looked at his livers and his outcomes as well, and again, validated pretty much a fractional mutational index, per se, of how genetically mutated is the tumor. You're a young guy. Suppose you were 65 or 70, in good shape, golfing, et cetera, et cetera. Would you still feel the same way? Yeah. I think the chance of this patient being alive in two years, it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, do we transplant people in Pittsburgh that are 76 years old? Sure. Dr. Tholoveth? I think you asked Paul what he would do if he had HCC of this severity. My feeling is if I had this situation, I would take everything. I would go to Dr. Geshwin. He will taste anyone, so he will taste me. <laughs> and then use sorafenib and convince the surgeon to transplant me because if the tumor biology is not, you know, this doesn't look like a good tumor biology, but even with this sort of tumor biology, if you were to transplant, there is a five-year survival of 30% if you look at the data. So there is a 30% five-year survival if you look at all the data published everywhere else, even with advanced tumors. You might say, can we justify a use of an organ like that? But if it is me, I will be selfish. Dr. Geshwin? The mass has replaced most of the right lobe, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter in this case whether there's portal vein flow or not. And especially if you do the chemoembolization without embolizing the artery, it's perfectly safe to do. Is that what you'd be thinking about doing yeah. here? Yeah. And if the patient said to you, what's the chance that the procedure is going to cause me a major problem, hepatic decompensation, et cetera? The side effects, complications, well-documented, you know, 3% at the very most. And if you do not embolize the artery to stasis, I think it's even less than that. Maybe we should ask him, if he had a choice, would he choose taste versus yttrium? Okay, and yttrium, that's also out on the table. Thank you, Paul. That's a good question. Yeah, I think for HCC, I would recommend taste first. I think the results and the data speak for themselves, and there's no evidence in my mind, especially for tumors that are fairly large, that yttrium-90 would be beneficial. And the reason for that is really due to the specific activity of the beads. If you use yttrium 90, and there are two types, but if you use the one that is most commonly used for HCC, which is the Canadian one, the specific activity per bead is very high, and as a result, the distribution of the spheres will be very limited. So you won't have a very extended coverage of the tumor by the beads. Agree, Dr. Gamblin? I would agree that the penetration of the radiation from the glass bead is a centimeter at most. And so in a very large tumor, if you cannot get beads in the center of the tumor, then you're right. Now, are you going to treat the periphery of the tumor, the hypervascular-enhancing portions of the tumor? Certainly, by selective blood flow, you're going to put your glass beads there. But I think that it's a good candidate for it. I think that the embolization phenomenon associated with the Therosphere product is less. Now, if you're not embolizing even to stasis, then I agree they're probably equivalent in the side effect profile that you're going to have. And we don't have data to compare the two. What are you looking for in the liver that would move you towards taste as opposed to a systemic therapy option like serafinib or a systemic therapy trial? What are you looking for? Well, I mean, I think that here it would be very similar to a surgical 
approach where you've got a large tumor in the liver, you've got to tackle it and try to kill it at least so that it doesn't... Yeah, but you've got tumor in the other lobe. You do, but then you would, treat, you would probably do at least three or four treatments on this patient. So you do both lobes? Yeah, not at the same time. So is that what you consider the standard of care, yes. standard approach to somebody who has non-surgical, resectable, or transplantable yes. With disease? With portal vein thrombosis. You yes. say that's standard of care. Yeah. Yeah. On Fendi? what basis? We've had a lot of discussions about that. In fact, for the taste seraphinib trial, there was an issue that was raised by some, and especially medical oncologists. But this is something from the past, because in the past, the way chemobilization was described was always embolization to stasis, and it's not the case anymore. Nobody does that, or nobody should do that. So the bottom line is that if you preserve the arterial inflow, whether there's port of thrombosis or not doesn't make any difference. And there's been a number of studies, including ours, that showed that even in the setting of port of thrombosis, the survival is still fairly high at 11 to 12 months median survival. And that's for child A and B. So, Dr. O'Neill, I want to try to put this in perspective. If we were to do a patterns of care study on this case, and we asked 40 investigators in this field and 100 oncologists in practice what they would do with this patient, what would we see? Or I think if you ask most medical oncologists, they would say systemic therapy for this patient. One of the big benefits of the SHARP trial, for better or worse, is that it gives us a randomized trial that's in a large number of patients that kind of establishes survival for a placebo group and a treated group. And that just doesn't exist similarly in this huge, broad category of patients offered and given quote, regional therapies. So it's just a big area that I don't have good numbers to talk with patients about. What about serafinib? So we've been using it for about 15 months, I guess, now. In summary, my experience with it is is I have start very few patients on the full dose, 400 twice a day. And how often do you see something that you go, wow, this is really helping? I actually have, surprisingly, I have seen some benefit from it. I have a patient on it since May of 07. Dr. Finn, do you agree with her dosing approach or how do you approach it? I generally do not. If a patient is well compensated, I will start them at full dose as done in the clinical study and see them back in about 10 to 14 days to assess their toxicity and dose reduce if necessary. Dr. O'Neill, same question. How do you approach the dosing? A little more similar to what Dr. Finn said. I'm not dose reducing at the outset for most patients, although there's this sort of gray area of the child PUB where the right, we're drug is indicated today. and it's not clear that they tolerate it as well. Although if you look at the limited amount of data that exists from the phase two study, it suggests they do. My experience has been that they don't seem to tolerate it as well as the study suggested they should. And I think in that group of patients, bad cirrhotics and maybe older patients starting at a lower dose is probably a reasonable thing to do. What about dosing in the immunosuppressed post-transplant patient? Do you give them 400 BID, Rich, or what do you give them if they recur? Post-transplant, we've used it in high-risk patients, patients who had higher tumor burden post-transplant or lots of lymphovascular invasion. We've offered it to them. And given their other large doses of medication, like you're referring to, we usually start at 400 and titrate up. That group of patients it's been hard to get them to stay on it for a long period sure. of time. How long do you leave them on it? You know, that's an unknown, and that's really dictated by their toxicity. So can you talk about what happened to this patient? After bavinerlotinib, it was stable disease at 16 weeks because it was a minor response. So it was less than a 30% response. So that's in resist. It's less than partial response, yeah. 
I think that it's important to emphasize the fact that there were probably a total of 100 clinical trials that were performed with systemic therapy for HCC that showed no survival benefit, none, not a single one. And yet people still prescribed doxorubicin, PF, a number of therapies or chemotherapeutic agents, phase one trials or not. And what I'm saying is that when you have a recognized local regional therapy that actually works and has been shown to work and prolong survival, I just don't understand why a patient like this would go to a phase one trial. I think you should try to go through the paradigm exactly as you said. You know, that's exactly what we do in a multidisciplinary conference. We go transplant, resection, ablation, chemoembolization. I mean, that's the way it is. And chemoembolization obviously is not curative, although, you know, if it's done in small tumors, I still maintain that it has curative potential. But the fact of the matter here is that to go into a phase one trial doesn't make any sense. Well, it was not a phase one. It was a phase two. Oh, a phase two. But even a phase two with drugs that are not necessarily active against this tumor. So, Dr. Chody, did Dr. Geshwin accurately describe the algorithm in your interdisciplinary conference? Well, I mean, I think now with the integration more recently of a trial showing some efficacy with systemic therapy, the serafinib, I think that fits into the equation. What we often grapple with is whether outside of a clinical trial to integrate serafinib in combination with one of these local regional therapies. I do think So outside of a trial, you're doing that? Selectively, I would say. So like taste and serafinib? Off study? Selectively, Well, we have a taste of in phase two study. I'm talking about off study. Yeah, off study. Are you okay with taste serafinib off study? I strongly believe that there's synergy between the two, and I would support that. Do we have safety data? No, there's no safety data. So a doc in practice says, we got this guy who does taste at our place. Should I add in some serafinib? No, it's a difficult question to answer. There is a phase three trial trial. in Asia of taste, with or without serafinib. And from what I understand, there has not been a large safety signal. But to your point about data, and I guess here with a patient with a portal vein thrombosis, so there's a large 600-patient randomized phase three study that shows a survival benefit for this type of patient with serafinib, where that does not exist with any local regional therapy for this type of patient you would still go with local regional therapy? Well, because I think the problem is, I'm sorry to say, but it's a political problem. It's a question of who controls the patients. And I think that, you know, for medical oncologists, it's always easier to enroll patients in clinical trials. But the fact is that there are plenty of studies around. Unfortunately, they are non-randomized trials, but especially in Asia. I mean, in Asia, you know, that is the overwhelming therapy that is performed. It's chemoembolization. And their patients, again, their patient population is much more advanced on average with protovian invasion. I think the problem with embolization studies is that it's so operator dependent and the method and follow up, you know, at our institution, we'll do a chemoembolization, get an MRI a month later and then assess response, whereas other institutions have a standard protocol, taste, recovery, angio. I agree with you. I think that's the problem. And we are getting to that where we have published a number of papers now published in obviously the interventional radiology literature, but, you know, looking at standardizing the taste protocol from the time the patient shows up for clinic until the patient dies, essentially. And so all the follow-up and all that is integrated. But in a way, you know, you can't prevent people. You can be dogmatic, but you can't be too dogmatic. I think a lot of what we do in interventional radiology is very similar to what surgeons do. Why would Mike operate on a tumor that somebody else at Mayo Clinic would say, absolutely do not touch, you know? So I think there's a lot of that that comes into play. And I agree that it depends on the level of expertise. And we talk about this all the time. But I think for the community, it's impossible to say the standard of care would be chemoembo for this patient over serafinib based on available data. What do we know about tastes in the community setting? Is it being done? How well is it being done? 
Yeah, that's a question that actually, again, that we are trying to address at the society level. Do we know? No, we don't know. And any impressions? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's commonly done. I think that the immense majority, probably 70% of the taste procedures are done in academic setting. And what's the quality control within academia? Generally all good? Yeah, usually yes, because we have M&M conferences and exactly like the surgeons do. So it's usually very, very closely regulated. I mean, regulated in the sense that there's someone with experience who can translate that to the younger guys or the junior faculty or the person who's doing it himself. For the next segment of the program, I asked Dr. O'Neill and Dr. Finn to review several of the key recent data presentations at the June ASCO meeting related to the use of serafinib and HCC. Dr. O'Neill reviewed several studies exploring subsets within the SHARP trial, and Dr. Finn reviewed several papers, including an oral ASCO presentation on the use of serafinib in Asian Pacific patients. Dr. O'Neill began this mini-journal club. I was asked to review several papers which have a common theme, and all of these are sub-analyses of the SHARP trial. And so I asked the question in looking at these, what does a serafinib candidate look like? So just as a preface, we've talked about the SHARP study a lot. I would say that the SHARP study represented a very select population of hepatocellular carcinoma patients. These are all child PUA, underlying liver disease, implying minimal ascites, a near-normal albumin, a near-normal bilirubin. Several patients were stated to have either prior RFA or prior chemoembolization. And then either metastatic disease or portal vein thrombosis was present in a majority of the patients. And just to sort of review the demographics in SHARP, the hep C population was about 30%. And this is probably slightly lower than my own population of patients, but this the distribution in SHARP is fairly reflective of what we see in the United States, remembering that SHARP mostly enrolled patients in Europe, about 20% hep B, about a quarter of the patients with alcohol, and a fairly large number of other, 26 and 29% in the serafinib and placebo arms, respectively. Performance status will be one of the subjects of one of the abstracts in SHARP enrolled patients with ECOG performance status 0 to 2. The vast majority of patients were ECOG performance status 0 or 1, with only 8 and 7% of the patients having a performance status of 2 in the study. Almost all patients child PUA, with a few who got in with a child PUB as protocol deviations, essentially. Prior therapy... 20% in each arm had prior surgery, and 40% had prior local regional therapy, again, in this case, lumping radiofrequency ablation and the various other modalities we've discussed, such as chemoembolization. For the entire group, the placebo group having a median survival of 7.9 months, the serafinib group having a median survival of 10.7 months, highly statistically significant. And so among the sub-analyses, I thought perhaps the most interesting and maybe most relevant because my population of patients seems to be very heavily weighted towards patients with hepatitis C virus infection is the retrospective analysis of the subgroup of patients with hepatitis C virus infection. This group, of course, tends to present with hepatocellular carcinoma in a background of very severe liver disease often. And in the SHARP trial, the difference in median survival for this group, which totaled 178 patients, split evenly between the two arms, was actually larger than for the group as a whole. The median survival difference was 7.9 months for the placebo group, similar to the entire population, whereas the population of patients with hep C virus infection actually had a median survival of 14 months when treated with serafinib. And that 
hazard ratio of 0.58, again, was somewhat better than it was for the entire group. This was a statistically significant difference. Importantly, also, therapy was tolerated in this group similarly to non-hepatitis C virus infected group. And this was a presentation by Dr. Balandi. The second subgroup that was analyzed, again, as an individual abstract, was by Sherman et al. And this is looking at the 421 patients who had extrahepatic spread or macrovascular invasion. But if you look at this group, again, there was a statistically significant difference in overall survival for this subgroup, 6.7 months, slightly lower for the placebo group than for the entire population versus 8.9 months. And this maybe begs the question, is benefit actually greater? The hazard ratio of 0.77 is actually higher than it was for the entire group. So that begs the question, is the benefit of serafinib greater in the lower disease burden group than it is in the higher disease burden group as represented by this portal vein thrombosis with a different hazard ratio? For the alcohol-related subpopulation, I mentioned that was 20% of the entire group. This was an abstract by Craxi et al., In this case, there was no significant difference. There was a trend, again, overall survival, 10.3 versus 8.0 months favoring the serafinib. The population in this case was too small to draw strong conclusions, but trended similarly to the study as a whole. And lastly, Raul et al. presented a poster on ECOG performance status and effect of serafinib. And as I mentioned before, very few of the patients had a performance status of two. So really you were comparing about half and half patients with performance status of zero or performance status of one. In that instance, if they had a performance status of zero versus one to two, the hazard ratio was 0.71. So a similar to the entire population. So there was no apparent effect of performance status on the chance of benefit from therapy. Again, I think a performance status of zero versus a performance status of one is not as dramatic as performance status zero versus two. So, you know, whether this adds much to our discrimination of how we're going to treat patients, I think is questionable. So to conclude, all these patient subgroups appeared to benefit from serafinib to at least some degree, although not every subgroup had a statistically significant benefit, as one would expect based on size of some of these subgroups. These data do raise the question for further study, do hepatitis C virus infected patients actually benefit more from serafinib than patients with other types of liver disease? I think that will be very interesting. Now, I think the Asian study suggesting a similar hazard ratio might suggest that hepatitis B virus patients benefit similarly as well. So this will be something interesting to look for. I don't think this answers the question, but does bring up an interesting question. And lastly, you know, do patients with less advanced disease benefit more? That would be very interesting because I think the patients with less advanced disease are also the ones who benefit more from treatments such as chemoembolization. Again, we really have to work hard now in a research setting to identify Where do we draw the line between someone who is a local regional therapy patient and someone who is a systemic therapy patient? And we've spent a lot of time arguing this morning about where does that line sit. None of us really knows where that line sits. So I think if really patients with less advanced disease benefit more and the patients with more advanced disease benefits less, that's an unfortunate thing, actually, but something that will need to be looked at in future studies. Dr. Finn, can you review your papers beginning with the Asian Pacific study? This is a comparative study to the SHARP trial done in a different population and asking the question, how does serafinib perform in a population where most of the disease is from hepatitis B, as well as the local approaches to the disease are managed differently than here in the West. 
Serafinib, as you know, is a multi-targeted inhibitor. It targets the VEGF receptor working on angiogenesis and the blood supply supplying tumor. It is also promiscuous inhibitor, meaning it hits other targets, one of them being RAF, an important kinase in proliferation cascades. However, arguably the importance of RAF in liver cancer is very undefined. So this study was like SHARP. It included patients with advanced liver cancer who had no prior systemic treatment, performance status 0 to 2, all child QA, which is important for this, and SHARP as far as, one, proving that the drug has anti-cancer activity, but then raises questions about acceptability to other patients. Uh, and it was placebo control, a 2 to 1 randomization towards treatment versus placebo as compared to SHARP, which was one-to-one, and endpoints being radiologic progression as well as symptomatic progression. Baseline patient characteristics, importantly, most of them were men. The majority of patients were stage C, but otherwise patients with locally advanced or extrahepatic disease. Importantly, most of these patients had hepatitis B. That differs from SHARP, that differs from the general population we see in the United States, though in Los Angeles on the Pacific Rim, we do see a fair amount of HBV. Overall survival was six and a half months in the treatment group versus four months. Clearly positive data supporting the use of serafinib, though I think all of us will notice that the control group did not do that well. That's compared to SHARP, 10.7 months versus 7.9 months. And comparing Asian and the SHARP data, Both studies showing a relative increase, that is a hazard ratio of 0.68, favoring serafinib, time to regression also by hazard ratio very comparable, not a lot of objective responses. So the magnitude of a benefit appears the same regardless of the underlying etiology and the patient population. There was a trend to maybe more hand foot in the Asian population, which raises the issue of maybe some metabolism that might be ethnic dependent. So in serafinib, the first systemic agent to improve overall survival in liver cancer. This was seen regardless of ethnicity. And the general feeling is that the Asian-controlled study had a more advanced patient population, which accounts for the worst performance in the control group. The next study is a doxorubicin study in combination with serafinib done by Dr. Abu Alpha. This study took patients who received doxorubicin for six cycles plus Nexavar versus doxorubicin and placebo. Six cycles was used because the total toxicity of doxorubicin there would approach 360 milligrams per meter squared, which is where we see cardiac toxicity. In some patients, they were allowed to continue on with doxorubicin. This was a one-to-one randomization, a randomized phase two. Primary endpoint time to progression. Again, a well-randomized study, well-balanced between each arm. Most of these patients were child PUA. So again, the addition of serafinib to chemotherapy improved time to progression and improved overall survival, 13.8 versus 6.5 months. No change in response rate and an increase in PFS with a hazard ratio of 0.6. It's important to note the study wasn't powered for these endpoints. However, obviously that data exists and could be of importance. There was no significant change in response rate by resist criteria on a waterfall plot. There were more patients on the serafinib arm that had some decrease in the size of their lesions, though it would not have met the criteria of a partial response. Toxicities were as expected for serafinib and the addition of a cytotoxic. While there weren't 
many significant differences in grade three, four toxicities. It is important to note that there was some increase in left ventricular dysfunction with doxorubicin, a cardiotoxic agent. So in summary, this study suggested some benefit of adding serafinib to doxorubicin. However, we need to keep in mind that there was some increased toxicity with LV dysfunction when compared to SHARP in SHARP 10.7 versus 7.9 months. Overall survival with serafinib was 13.8 months. So serafinib improved survival in patients with advanced liver cancer with or without doxorubicin. I think we need to pay attention to this increased cardiotoxicity. And I think the problem I have with this study is why do the study? <laughs> you took a drug that has really no, that being doxorubicin, that has no efficacy data as a single agent, empirically designed, adding serafinib, just because doxorubicin was standard of care and not taking advantage of any biologic rationale or molecular rationale. In addition, the study that really needed to be done was serafinib versus serafinib and doxorubicin. This benefit could all be serafinib in this population. And I think that if this study was to move forward, that would be the study that wants to be done. And my understanding is, is that there's a phase three study planned with this regimen. And, you know, in my opinion, that's a terrible waste of resources and patients. So the last one I'm reviewing is from Dr. Andy Zhu, an excellent investigator at Mass General that's looking at sunitinib in patients with liver cancer. Sunitinib, you'll remember, is a multi-targeted kinase hitting the VEGF receptor as well as some other receptors. It's approved in kidney cancer right now, as well as GI stromal tumors. So this took patients who had zero or one prior regimen, good performance status, good liver function, and got a regimen that was 37.5 milligrams every day, four weeks on, two off. Endpoints were PFS, as then some exploratory studies looking at permeability on imaging, some protein changes in angiogenic markers, as well as circulating endothelial cells. So some sign of activity with prolonged stabilized disease, one PR disease control rate of 53%. Overall survival, 9.8 months, not that much different from SHARP. Toxicity may be a little greater than what we've seen with serafinib, some bone marrow suppression, some alterations in transaminases, as well as things well-known with Sutent, rash, and foot syndrome. Biomarkers, there was a decrease in permeability with sunitinib, as well as changes in some angiogenic markers and an attempt to look at some predictive markers of response and associated things. Again, an exploratory study as far as the biomarkers, but I think it needs to be highlighted that these type of things are important in incorporating in future prospective studies to better understand the biology of these agents. So conclusion from this study and other sunitinib studies is that this drug seems to have activity in liver cancer. I think at the end of the day, this supports the importance of anti-angiogenesis in HCC. Chemoembolization is essentially an anti-angiogenic strategy, I think, and we've been doing that mechanically for a long time, and now we have pharmacologic agents that can do that.